Hello and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at the Strad. Stephanie Bayer is a violist who, in addition to serving as Director of String Studies and Orchestras, plus Professor of Viola and Chamber Music at NYU Steinhardt, has enjoyed a multifaceted musical career within the New York community. Notably, Stephanie held the chair of Principal Viola in the Broadway production of The Phantom of the Opera for 22 years. Phantom closed on Broadway earlier this year, but Stephanie shared with me how she got started playing in Broadway shows, as well as how the versatility required in musical theatre bands and orchestras feeds your classical playing. She speaks about the Broadway Orchestra, unique to NYU Steinhardt, which aims to train up students to play in musicals and ready themselves for a freelance career. We also discussed our strategies for keeping things fresh when you're playing the same show every night. I myself hold a cello chair in a West End production at the moment, so it was really great to share thoughts on life as a pit musician and hopefully uncover some of the mystique surrounding this topic, which doesn't get a huge amount of airtime on the Strad. Although that is now changing right now. Here's Stephanie. Stephanie, welcome to the Strad podcast. I'll give an introduction for listeners. Um, you're a viola player and you're the director of string studies and professor of viola and chamber music studies at NYU and also the director of orchestras at NYU Steinhardt. One thing that I really wanted to talk about today was your experience playing on Broadway, because as you've mentioned to me before, you were the principal violist of the Phantom of the Opera for 22 years. I'd quite like for you to share your experiences as a Broadway pit musician, because I think it's a topic that doesn't necessarily get a lot of spotlight amongst stringed instrumentalists. We hear a lot about chamber music, we hear a lot about orchestra players, we hear a lot about soloists, and obviously there are a lot of transferable skills that we can put into playing in pit orchestras, but we don't always hear about it. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how you got playing in Broadway shows. Um, There's sometimes a bit of mystique surrounding the topic because people's roots are not necessarily formalized. Uh, Tell us your experience about how you got into it all. Well, hi, Davina, and I want to thank you, first of all, for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about this subject because it's something that's very dear to my heart. I started playing in Broadway shows in 1981. I played in a lot of different shows. I've also subbed in a lot of different shows. In terms of, you know, times have changed. When I started playing Broadway, there was a lot of other work, commercial work, as well as classical work in New York City. There was a big pool of musicians, but however, we were all going and doing a lot of different things. And that included playing Broadway. It was just sort of an inclusive kind of a thing. If you were freelancing in New York, you would play Broadway, you would play commercial work, you would play some of the classical orchestras. I did a lot of contemporary music when I started out. So a lot of different things. What used to happen is somebody would recommend you to a contractor and a contractor would call you and you would, you know, basically come in maybe to sub in a show. Subbing in a show is extremely difficult. Because what they're looking for in a Broadway show is not someone to remake the wheel, but someone to sound exactly the same as the person they were replacing. Yeah, to replicate, in a sense. To replicate, because the stage is depending on that. And 
the conductors are depending on that. Subbing in a Broadway show is very tricky. It used to be that you would only get one try. The actual music for a Broadway show is called the book. Mm. And you would get the book to look at, and maybe you would get the book to take home to practice, but you would have to bring it back. When I started doing this, I played this. My first show was the Broadway show Annie, which um, moved to a larger theater, and they needed to add more musicians. So I was recommended by someone and played that show for a couple of years. But then I, I did a whole lot of subbing, and the subbing was really tricky because you had to go in and listen to everything and be aware of everything around you and all of the cues and oftentimes the music wasn't marked specifically particularly the practice book so you would get in to play the show the first time and your heart would basically be in your throat (laughs) yeah it is a very very nerve-wracking thing subbing or or deputizing dipping as we call on on this side of the pond because your first chance to really get to play the show is in the show you don't have that opportunity you don't have the luxury of rehearsals band calls that the chairholder has but you sort of just have to turn up and as you say not reinvent the wheel but just replicate just so that the show can keep going. But you have to replicate it. Well, I'm not just saying that you have to phone it in. I think that you have to absolutely be Mm. as prepared as you possibly can. Nowadays, people make recordings. The books are better marked. Oftentimes, people come in more than once to look at the book before they come into play the first time which makes it much, much less <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. And often I think someone who's depping or subbing will receive a video camera recording of the MD, the musical director, conducting. Really? In, they do that in, in London? They don't do that in New York? Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So I, maybe that's another luxurious um, thing of, of the times now. But, you know, you, you'll get your conductor cam. Basically, yeah. you know, I, I suppose if you're playing in a pit and you're playing off a monitor because you might be remote you might not be able to see the conductor right and you get that recording and you can take it home and practice well the other part of that is that very often when I was playing Fabton people would call me and ask me if they could play for me Mm -hmm. and it was obvious that they wanted to come in and sub which is the way it's the most traditional way of getting into into Broadway is subbing and subbing well and, and fitting in and understanding all of the constraints of the pit (laughs) namely you don't have a lot of room to play in and you have to get along and you have to just sort of be there it's it's a skill that you develop while you're not sight reading because you have this the book to look at you know before you come in it sort of feels like sight reading because you're dealing with a conductor you know it's different than just playing with a metronome or or practicing a part and Mm. understanding what the notes are But basically these days, and I think it's always been this way, um, people get into Broadway by recommendation. Mm -hmm. I would say it's the same in London as well. You never know how it comes about. It might be because you did a string quartet gig with a certain player years before they get a chair somehow and they recommend you. You know, it's, it's a kind of cosmic big picture kind of thing. And often it's just by recommendation. And who's free, but who is free and good? (laughs) The other thing that I want to add is what helped me was realizing that they actually needed me to come in. They needed to have a good list of subs. So in New York, the way it works is the individual players hire their own subs. Yes. Yeah. Same here. So people would want to know that they had some reliable people who could come in 
should they have to take off from a show for whatever reason. That's the other side of it is you don't have to feel like you're walking in, you know, into an exam or something. It, it's more that people want you to play well because they've obviously invited you because they think you're capable of performing. Yeah, and often people sub or they dip so often that it almost becomes a, a job share. So they've got to sort of understand that sense of responsibility that they are needed. The show needs them in order to go on. Um, in my experience, um, because I'm currently a chairholder in the West End production of Oklahoma, obviously I can't be there for certain matinees because I have another job at a magazine called The Strad, it seems. So <laughs> I have to make sure that I've got a list of trusted deps or subs that can go and get on with the job. So we've talked a little bit about how you got into Broadway and how a lot of it depends on recommendation and making sure that when you show up, you play well in the style that's required of the production. And there's so much more to playing in a pit or a pit orchestra than meets the eye. So I know that you're taking measures in curricula to ensure that future generations of musicians are prepared. So, you know, tell me a little bit about what you're hoping to instill in the next generation of musicians. Oh, that's a wonderful question. And it's so timely because I think that the music world is changing dramatically recently for, you know, as we all know, myriad reasons. One of the problems that I had starting out was I had a very vague idea of styles other than classical because I had been trained classically. And all of a sudden I was thrown into a Broadway show that was basically sort of a rock and roll jazzy, <laughs> you know, musical that demanded a very different kind of playing because number one, you are subsidiary to what's going on on the stage. Yeah. So one of the things that about, I guess it was five years ago, five or six years ago, we had this idea, we came up with this idea. We have a wonderful at NYU, a very, very wonderful and strong vocal performance program. And we've always had the students playing, you know, the musicals and the students love doing that. And we came up with this idea that we should actually have a Broadway orchestra because various styles, you know, they demand very different kind of playing. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky. It was sort of like a conflagration of all of the, the right things happened at exactly the same time because we had my colleague, Jonathan Haas, was happened to be working with a conductor named Ted Sperling, who is one of the, the giants in musical theater, a wonderful conductor. And in the room was a man named John Miller, who was one of the top contractors on Broadway. And they concocted with my say so as well, this idea of developing a Broadway orchestra that would not only work to sight read a lot of different shows, but also work on styles, work on the history of the music, work on, you know, all of the other things that pertain as well to music directing, as well as just, you know, playing your part as a violist or a violinist or whatever. And so we started this Broadway orchestra five years ago. And it's been extremely successful to the point where quite a few of our students have graduated and started touring with various Broadway shows, both in, the, in America and also internationally. Mm -hmm. But I think that this speaks a little bit more to even curriculum, because 
I think that in terms of conservatory education, and I know this is going to be a very controversial statement, the price of admission is playing really well. Whatever you do, you have to be able to play your instrument very well. But at this point in time, you have to be much more familiar with many different genres, whether it's, you know, new musical notation, whether it's how to play swing, how to play jazz, how to play rock and roll, how to play hip hop. These are all specific genres that are actually acceptable and artistic. And you have to be able to understand that they're not played the same way that you would play a Brahms symphony. It was very eye-opening to me when I came into the business and realized that I couldn't play everything the way I played, you know, my sonatas and concertos, that I had to develop a, a completely different technique to the point, and it has to do with understanding rhythm more deeply and understanding pulse more deeply, understanding musical line, understanding how to support a musical line differently. I think probably if I would think of anything that would be somewhat analogous, it would be playing chamber music. Because playing chamber music, you're always dealing with not just your own playing, but how to fit into the fabric of the group, the sound of the group, the aesthetic of the group. You're adding to a much wider canvas because it's not just what's happening in the pit. You're contributing to what's going on on stage, you know, in the same way that lighting contributes, that video contributes. Obviously, the actors, the singing, everything that's going on on stage, the costumes. But yeah, interesting what you say about chamber music. It's definitely good to, as I say, have your antennae up when you're playing in a pit because you often are very close to your musical colleagues but you're also having to be very flexible in the way you play. And often because you are in the rehearsal process, quite often you're collaborating with a musical supervisor or an MD who has a very specific take on how something needs to be played. I feel like in my experience, a lot of the time, all these new styles that I was having to learn. So in Oklahoma, it's obviously very uh, bluegrass inspired. Having to learn how to do a chop groove. I'd never done that before. But you just have to find a way to do it. And that comes from having a background of flexibility and open-mindedness to execute when you need to. I also wanted to ask you, with the Broadway Orchestra, you know, do you coach your students at all about doubling? Because often in musical theatre pits, a lot of the time to do with cutting costs, but also, you know, there (laughs) might be a violin part that requires two bars of viola. Right. Do you coach your students at all with that? Because sometimes, you know, it might not even be the transition between violin and viola. It might be violin to mandolin or even banjo in some cases. Actually, I'm glad you brought this up. We actually have a doubling degree in woodwinds. Mm-hmm. And our, most of our string players double at least on viola. Well, I mean violinists. <laughs> and violists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to get me playing the viola as a cello player. I'd have to I'm turn it not. around. It's okay. <laughs> we think that that's very important. And also, I mean, you have to be able to play these instruments well. Yeah. It's, it's not just that you sort of play the viola if you're a violinist. You have to really understand how to, even if you have 10 measures, how to make the viola sound like a viola. And I don't think it's just a cost-cutting thing. I think that what happens in Broadway, because you have a small orchestra and you have an orchestrator who wants to have a variety of sounds, the orchestrator needs to have more different instruments to do that. I mean, I'm thinking of one of the shows that I didn't play, Miss Saigon, that has, I believe, 
woodwind parts that have four and five doubles on them. Wow. And we actually have some of our woodwind players double on four and five instruments and double well. It's definitely more of a specialized thing in, in wind players than string players. Like I, sure. I do know that commonly double bass players will double on bass guitar. That's a fairly right. usual transition. Violin, viola, violin, sometimes mandolin. I have also heard of violin, electric guitar or violin and banjo. And all of a sudden sure. it's like, oh my goodness, like I've never touched a banjo in my life. How do I do this? But I think we can learn a lot from the versatility that wind players have to implement, right? Because you know, they might start out on flute and then they're expected to play really proficiently on saxophone or clarinet with reeds, transposing in different keys at the blink of an eye. It's it's quite an admirable skill. That's right. I think that it's a very good skill to have. I think that to have these days, the idea of flexibility is so important. One day you could be called to play a Broadway show. The next day you could be called to play something contemporary, which is completely out of your league with completely different extended techniques that you might not have thought of doing. The next week you might be playing a Baroque concert. Mm. I think this is the joy of being a musician, is having so many different possibilities as outlets for your creativity. And I think that that also includes playing on Broadway. It also includes playing commercial music. We have also a very big film scoring program. We have a concert every year where the film scoring students submit scores. Some of them you know, are chosen to play within the concert with either a snippet of a silent film or an animation or something like that, because that's also important to know. And that's also a different style. One of the things that's different about commercial music, whether it's Broadway or whether it's, you know, recorded or whatever, is the fact that you have to be with the beat. Mm. You have to be with the click track. You can't, you know, a symphony orchestra or the conductor, you know, the ictus comes down and the orchestra comes in just slightly <laughs> later because the orchestra breathes with the conductor. This is different. You have to be on the beat. And I find for a lot of students who are only playing classical music, and I found that for myself when I started out, that was challenging. Yeah. Come on, you've got to be on the click. You've really got to. On the click. Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) And also another challenge that comes along with that is, obviously, if you're playing along with the click, you are going to be using in-ear monitors or wearing a set of headphones, a set of cans. Right. And that presents another set of challenges, doesn't it? Because I think a lot of the time string players aren't used to hearing themselves in that slightly disconnected way. You know, we're used to playing really acoustically. If, if you're doing a lot of chamber music, you're doing obviously you're doing symphony orchestras. And then if you're doing commercial work, often you'll be mic'd and you'll be hearing yourself in your ears. You know, that's quite an interesting approach as well, I think. I was thinking about this the other week. All my students are listening to music on headphones anyway. So they're very used to having cans, you know, my generation, not so much. (laughs) So you had to sort of get used to hearing the click out of one ear and and listening to yourself on the other. It's more developing the, the skill to actually play on the beat that's difficult because we all tend as melodic instruments to play a little bit behind the beat. And it's always tempting to want to wallow in a nice melody, isn't it? Absolutely. Why end a a phrase on time, you know? (laughs) Exactly. It's like, how do you still maintain that melodic line, that expressiveness, but within the parameters of a click? Yes. And also, how do you support the stage? Because actually, the music in a musical 
is the underpinning of everything. Mm. The orchestra is the underpinning. One of the things that attracted me to going to academia was the fact that the Department of Music and Performing Arts at NYU has a number of programs that really work well with entrepreneurship as a musician. Um, we have a top music business program. We have a top uh, music technology program, a top performing arts administration program. So I saw opportunities for our students to not only learn how to play their instruments well, but also to learn the business of music, which is really important. It's one thing to play your instrument well and to go out into the business, but it is a business and you have to understand how that works, which was, I think, the hardest part for me because I just wanted to play. I didn't think about you know, getting hired for one thing as opposed to another thing, getting hired for Broadway, whatever. And I was sort of a, a babe in the woods as far as that is concerned when I started out. And I resolved that if I ever was had the opportunity that I would try to offer my students some sort of business courses so that they would understand how to conduct themselves. This is the evolution of the music program, the music performance program at NYU. It was predicated not only on conservatory training, which, you know, we have wonderful chambered music, wonderful orchestra, wonderful faculty, but also that students had to be aware of genres, that they had to also understand what their rights are. We have mm. courses in uh, rights of creators. We have an entrepreneurial minor, which many of our students take. And I think that this enables them to have a lot more understanding of the business as they enter than I did. Yeah. And that makes me extremely happy. I also should say that we just opened a brand new music facility, the John A. Paulson Center for the Performing Arts, that is so exquisite that I invite your audience to go <laughs> and just take a look online and see what our facilities are like. We have probably the most beautiful orchestra rehearsal room I have ever in my life seen. Mm -hmm. No kidding. If only I were a student again, <laughs> it would just yeah. be perfect. Lucky students <laughs> and lucky teachers who get to work yes. with the facilities. I wanted to go back a little bit to what you said earlier about a wonderful thing about being a musician is having that variety of um, opportunities. As you said, you might be playing in a Broadway show one day, then you might be doing a Baroque concert, then you might be playing in symphony orchestra. So drawing on your experience as you had the principal viola chair in Phantom on Broadway for 22 years. And I don't know if you've been asked this question a lot, but how did you manage to keep things fresh during that time? I mean, even me, I've been holding this chair, you know, only six months in comparison to 22 years. It's not very long, but I do get asked the question, how do you handle playing the same thing every single night? So, <laughs> yes, in fact, that's usually the first question or the second question. The first question is, how did you get the gig? And the second question is, <laughs> how do you manage to, to stay fresh? Interestingly, well, I should preface all of this by saying I was very fortunate because the Phantom score is beautiful. Mm. It's fun to play. There are some shows that are not as fun to play as others are. And I've actually been lucky because most of the shows that I've played have been totally fun to play every night. This is going to sound really strange, but I developed my technique. I'm not sure that I should even publicize this <laughs> because it's probably not the best thing to say, but Phantom had a lot to play in it. 
so I felt that if I would give myself technical tests to do every night, you know, to see if I can play with a more beautiful bow change, mm. to see if every time I start at the tip that it's exactly how I want the sound to be, if I can play with a color of sound that I, I like more, that if I can work on my vibrato to get it more even. There was always something over all of those times. I mean, I can't say that every single night it was that I was excited to go and, <laughs> and work on my technique. Yeah. But I'm really a steady practicer. So I always practice my scales. I always warm up with a certain technical, you know, 20 minutes of, of various things that I do. And I think if you do that, it's not all that different. Enjoyed playing Phantom. Mm. I enjoyed playing it almost every night. We had a wonderful, we had mostly wonderful conductors, which was great to work with. And I can say that for most of the conductors I've worked with on Broadway, they've been really wonderful to work with. It was a lot of fun. The only thing I think that is difficult is when you're playing in a pit, it's much louder. I mean, certainly if you're in a room off stage somewhere, it's better. But if you're in a pit and you're playing with, you know, an orchestral score, it's very loud sometimes. And that, I think, was the one big challenge I had going in. I finally ended up putting in a very, very light earplug just because I wanted to make sure I didn't damage my ears, my hearing. Interesting what you said about these little technical goals that you set yourself, because... Yes. I think that is important when you are doing the same thing night after night. How are you going to find ways that you can do small things just a little bit better? You know, it's just quite a nice thing to strive towards. As a cellist, you know, a lot of the time I'm playing long notes. But that's a great opportunity. Exactly. When you become conscious of that, you realize, as you say, it's, it's an opportunity to, okay, maybe tonight I'm going to really focus on my tone. Maybe I'm going to think about my contact point. Maybe I'm going to think about what kind of vibrato I'm going to use to color this note. Because I think, Precisely. you know, anyone yeah. listening, you know, it's it's going to contribute to the overall experience of the show, even in, the, in that minute way. But it's also a good way for you to keep fresh. Another thing I wanted to say is that, like, do you find that each show is different depending on what audience is in the house each night. You wouldn't think so because you're in a pit, but yes, I think that, do you feel that also in, in Oklahoma? Well, I'm on stage um, in Oklahoma, and so you're I, on stage. <laughs> I, I, know. I see them. So. Which is wonderful. I'm not sure that we, being in the pit, that we were as aware of the audience as we were of on stage because they were two different leads yeah, and they were slightly different and so you would have to adjust to them. You know, I have to say the audience for Phantom was so enthusiastic. <laughs> you know, 99% of the time. Oh, the chandelier is <laughs> coming down. Oh, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So exciting. <laughs> but yeah, it is It is interesting how I think a change of personnel can keep things fresh. I mean, yes. as you mentioned, you know, you had two different leads and you have to adjust slightly. But I always find it, it's it's exciting when a dep or a sub comes in. Obviously, they're there not to reinvent the wheel as we've established, but it's a new presence in the pit. And that's exciting or when there are understudies on you know I think yes. that's a good way to keep you yes. fresh for sure well I think also with Phantom because it was an orchestra there were two violas a lot of the writing was two separate parts mm. so the other joy of this is you have basically your own part to play yeah 
and that's wonderful. That's why I think it's sort of like chamber music. You know, it's yeah. like you're contributing in your own way and you have a lot of more opportunity than say if you're just playing in a well, that's a terrible thing to say, but you're playing in a large orchestra. In a section, yeah, for sure. You have in a section you have yeah. a very different con- contribution. Yeah. There's nowhere to hide. <laughs> Right, right. But that's wonderful. Yeah, I think that that's a key thing, isn't it? Is you get the opportunity to really take responsibility for your part and, right. and really own it. And I think that's that's quite an empowering position to be in. I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your insights today on not only your experiences playing on Broadway, but the future of music making because it's it's a, a much wider ranging topic than just one thing so thank you so much thank you so much for having me Davina it's been a total joy that was Stephanie Bayer as you can probably tell by the length of this episode I really enjoyed chatting with Stephanie and if you're interested in more content about playing in musical theatre you can check out our opinion piece in the Strad May 2023 issue all about depping written by as well as some other online articles for which I'll include a link in the show notes. Don't forget to check out thestrad.com where you'll find the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. There's 50% off an online subscription for students and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. It will help other people discover this podcast. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.